scriptures together to the first to the prophecies of Jeremiah, then to the letter to the Hebrews, Jeremiah chapter 9, <clears throat> in your pew Bible, page 809, 809, James will be writing about the poor and the rich, as I mentioned. He'll also be writing about boasting, a certain kind of boasting. And Jeremiah writes about a certain kind of boasting. So that'll be the connection as we read Jeremiah 9, the verses 12 through 26. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? And that's uh, judgment over Israel for their rebellion. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined? That's the land of Israel. And laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined! We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. From here, we turn to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, page 12, or rather page, yes, 1284. 
1284. This is that famous chapter where the writer to the Hebrews goes through a number of the Old Testament believers who are examples of uh, people of faith. And then he comes to Moses in verses 23 uh, through 28. And that's, that'll have our attention. Moses also, uh, something is said here about him and riches. That's the connection to the text in James. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That's as far as we'll go in Hebrews 11. In the Pew Bible, page 1288, we'll read our text for this morning, the verses 9 through 11. Continuing our series in this letter, James, inspired by the Spirit, writes this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So far our text in response, we'll sing about boasting, boasting in the Lord, Psalm 20, all four stanzas. <clears throat> Beloved bride, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, James once again seems to be turning channels on us. He introduces a new subject, the rich and the poor. And as he does so, he throws a kind of a hot potato in our lap. Not only does he mention the lowly or poor brother, but the potato becomes hot when he mentions the rich. And not only does he mention the rich, but he has a dire warning for the rich man. Verse 11, you're nothing more than a flower of the field that fades away. You will fade away, rich man, in all your pursuits. So if you are a rich person, how are you supposed to take that? How are you supposed to 
feel about that. And if you read further in James's letter, the rich man really gets raked over the coals, doesn't he? In chapter 2, verse 6, the rich are described as those who oppress the believers that James is writing to by dragging them into court and suing them. At least the, the group of rich people in chapter 2 seem to be rich people outside the congregation and oppressing those within the church. But then in chapter 5, James comes to speak directly to the rich, and he, he hits them between the eyes. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, this is James, and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. And ouch. In chapter 5, because James says, you rich, it sounds like he's talking to members of the churches, to the rich folks sitting in the pew every Sunday. And his words in chapter 5 are a complete slam to the rich. How are we supposed to take that? How is a preacher supposed to preach on this text or these passages to a 21st century congregation in one of the richest countries in the world, Canada? in a town, Ancaster, known for its wealth. Is preaching about the rich going to land me in hot water? It might. The sword of God's Word is sharp, and sometimes it cuts deep. And we all, every one of us, might very well feel the heat of that water. But that's okay, brothers and sisters, that's okay. If God's Word rebukes us, let it do so. If it corrects us, let it do so. It is for our good. If it reveals a blind spot or makes us uncomfortable in our pew, if it hurts us, let it do its work. It's gospel for us. Just like going through the fire of God's testing furnace that we saw a couple of weeks ago going through such a fire is agonizing in itself but beneficial in the long run and that's what James is coming back to here in our text he's coming back to the trials that he started out with in verse 2 the trials of various kinds you remember he's writing to the church in the dispersion and you and I are part of the dispersed church. We live scattered abroad among the nations as strangers in the world. And as we live in that circumstance, trials like poverty and or riches are two distinct and common trials for God's people. And to handle those trials, you and I, we need wisdom. James has just urged us in the previous text, we saw that last time, to pray for wisdom as trials befall us. And now in our text, he actually imparts, he gives a word of wisdom to us. 
when it comes to facing trials that deal with money. That'll be our theme this morning as I bring you this word of the Lord. Follow God's wisdom. Follow God's wisdom in the trials of poverty or riches. We'll see two things. We are to boast in what we can't see, and we are to look past what we can see. We know James in our text is still thinking about the trials that he started out with for two reasons. In verse 12, right after our text, he specifically mentions those trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And there's a good number of scholars that think verse 12 should be taken together with verse 11 as part of one paragraph. You have to understand that in the original Greek there are, there are no paragraphs. It's just one continuous whole. So these paragraphs are put in the Bible by translators who are helping us understand the flow of thought. And a paragraph groups together one basic thought. But sometimes it's not so easy to understand where one thought starts and a new thought begins. Is it at verse 12 or at verse 13? Well, we're going to leave that matter to the to the ESV, and we'll leave things as they've done it, but it's clear from verse 12 that James still has on the brain this whole issue of trials. And more to the point, in verse 9 of our text, he uses a verb that is closely connected to the verb he used in verse 2. And that's the verb in verse 9, boast. He says, let the poor man boast, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now that word boast can be used negatively and positively. It can be used in a negative way in the Bible for prideful boasting, for puffing yourself up, but it can also be used in a positive way, and that's how James does it here, to boast or exalt in something outside of yourself that actually brings glory to the Lord. A synonym for this word boast here would be rejoice. You could legitimately translate, let the lowly brother rejoice in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. A number of psalms use this same verb in this same way. For example, Psalm 149, which we sang, which the NIV translates, verse 5, let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. So that is a positive form of boasting. You are rejoicing in something that exalts God. Well, now you can begin to see a connection to verse 2. For in verse 2, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy and rejoice are in the same thought world, aren't they? In other words, when you encounter trials in your life, see it as a reason to rejoice. And now in verse 9, James presents an example of such trials that the scattered and persecuted believers in the dispersion are facing, namely the trial of money. 
Let the lowly brother count it all joy. Let him rejoice and let the rich man do the same. James is describing a situation where these believers either don't have sufficient money and they're suffering poverty, or on the other hand, they've got plenty of money and are suffering the spiritual affliction we could call affluenza. Affluence, you probably know, simply means to have lots of money. In our present circumstances, everybody's wor worried right now about catching a certain virus, and lots of other people are worried about the seasonal ailment influenza, but people with money need to be concerned about the spiritual ailment called affluenza. That's a whole lot more dangerous yet, because wealth and riches bring a multitude of trials and temptations. Having too much money can make you spiritually sick. So James is targeting both groups. Whether the, the Christian is poor or whether he's rich, each faces a trial or a testing of the faith, and each group must learn to rejoice, to find joy, or to boast, then, in something besides their money or their lack of money. We have to learn to boast, brothers and sisters, in what we can't see. And to understand what James is getting at, we have to clarify a couple of things. First, in verse 9 and 10a, the first part of verse 10, James is speaking about Christians, about poor and rich believers. Later, in verse 11, he will speak of the rich man in a very broad sense as a category of people. We do this too when we, for example, speak of the so-called 1%, or if we just speak of the upper class, then we have in mind every wealthy person across the board. Well, that's what James is thinking of in verse 11. But in verse 9, James is more specific. He starts that verse, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He refers to the lowly brother. And everywhere in this letter, brother or brothers is used to refer to church members, brothers and sisters, you understand. And that word for lowly, while it can often mean humble in spirit, uh, when it's used in opposition to the rich, the monetarily rich, it emphasizes the person's economic poverty. So they might indeed be humble, but they are economically poor as well. So, so James is telling the humble, penniless believer to boast or rejoice in his exaltation, he says. Now what does that mean? Now just hang on to that question for a moment. We'll come back to that. We need to also see that in the other part of this sentence, verse 10a, James is speaking of rich Christians when he says, and the rich in his humiliation. Notice that there's no verb in that clause. 
you need some kind of verb. You have to add some kind of verb in order to make sense of that. And in Greek, this is a common way of, of writing sentences, and as a rule means that the verb from the first part of the sentence is understood or imported into the second part of the sentence. So we should understand James to say, and the rich should boast in his humiliation. Okay, we get that, but who are the rich? Which rich people is James referring to? Well, in a similar way, when that's a question mark, when the subject is a question mark, it's natural in Greek to supply the same subject as that first part of the sentence. You just import it. So the result becomes this, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. You can see how that balances out the sentence grammatically and even balances out the situation of the poor and the rich believer, but it still leaves us with a, with a more basic question, what does James mean when he talks about exaltation and humiliation? And how can anybody rejoice? How can you take joy in humiliation? Isn't humiliation a bad thing? Isn't it something to be avoided? Who likes being humiliated? So once again in this chapter we see that James is putting us to the challenge. It's like we've entered opposite world. This is upside down, it would seem. And to the watching, unbelieving world, this kind of instruction would indeed be nonsensical. For the penniless Christian has nothing to boast about as far as the world is concerned. That poor person has to scrounge around for food and a roof over his head. What is there to rejoice about in that? The poor Christians James is writing to were often persecuted by very powerful people in society, whether in the Jewish society or in the Gentile society. Later in chapter 2, we'll learn that these poor believers were sometimes cheated out of their wages. They were dragged into court. To anyone observing their situation from a distance, they would at best have pity on these poor Christians in their miserable circumstances. Where's the joy? But James is offering us a word of wisdom from above that the world knows nothing of. God teaches us here to look beyond what we can see with our eyes to what we can see with the eyes of faith. The impoverished Christian brother is actually enormously rich in Christ. That's what the eyes of faith see. He might not have two nickels to rub together, and he might also be a whipping boy for the powerful rulers, but because he places his trust in the Lord Jesus, he has, in the eyes of God, a high status, a very high status. The Bible tells us elsewhere, for example, Paul in Ephesians 1 writes about our spiritual wealth. He says, in Christ we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of all our trespasses 
according to the riches of his grace, the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us. Later in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we might be given eyes to see, to truly see our invisible but very real situation of wealth, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, Paul prays, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? No matter if you are poor as a church mouse, or knee-deep in debt, or just starting out in life, or if you are harassed by people with influence and power, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are rich. You have an inheritance in heaven. As Peter writes in his first letter, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that, brothers and sisters, is what you and I need to boast in. That's where our joy is found. That's what we can exult in, you see. It works the other way around for the person who has lots of cash, who is rich in earthly goods. When the world looks at you, if you're in that situation, they think you've got it made in the shade. You're rich. They envy you, the unbelieving world, when you're rich. They, they want to be you, and that's a big temptation for rich Christians. It's tempting to agree with the world's perspective and to start to think that you're all that. Because you've got the fancy stuff, the big toys, and the luxury that's, that you enjoy, and the respect of the community. But the Holy Spirit is saying in our text, don't boast in any of those things. Don't rejoice in the things that you can see and touch, but boast in what you can't see. Boast not in your stocks but boast and your bonds, but boast in the bond you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that described as humiliation? Because in the eyes of the unbelieving world, such a focus, such a boast is ludicrous. When a wealthy believer makes a point of doing what James writes here, looking past his or her possessions and making an effort to rejoice in that he belongs or she belongs body and soul to Jesus Christ, when he or she is open about that, is obvious about that in, in still a humble way, but just open and obvious about that in word and in deed, how do unbelievers look at that? Many unbelievers will mock and ridicule and despise them for it, especially unbelievers who themselves are wealthy. They will do their best to belittle and humiliate rich Christians who give all the attention, who give all the honor to the Lord Jesus because the unbelieving world can't understand that. They think that's foolish. Isn't that what the 
We have some examples in the Bible. Isn't that what the wealthy Pharisees, they had lots of money, the Pharisees. What did they do to Nicodemus, one of their own, a wealthy man himself, Nicodemus? Remember what happened? When Nicodemus just raised a question in the assembly, trying to get a bit of a fair hearing for Jesus, they turned on him and they mocked him. Are you from Galilee too, they said, Galilee being a place of that was already despised? What about when famous actors and athletes and politicians who dare to speak up for the cause of Christ in the public eye, what happens to them? Don't they get hated on by their peers and in the Twitterverse, in the media? Isn't that what Moses suffered, as we read about in Hebrews 11? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here it comes. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, as a prince, Moses could have inherited all the wealth of Egypt. Just think about that. But here is exactly James's point. Moses considered the reproach of Christ. You could also say the humiliation of Christ as far as the world looking down on Christ. He considered that reproach greater, greater wealth than all the money in Egypt. Moses was looked down upon in the eyes of the world but he rejoiced that in the eyes of the Lord he was exalted. That's where every Christian with money needs to be in their heart. Truth is, it's not easy being a Christian, whether poor or rich. And so the wisdom we are taught here is to learn to look beyond what we can see to the crucial realities that are invisible and learn to boast or rejoice in those things. They're invisible, but they're still realities, right? Like oxygen and gravity and wind. We can't see any of them, but we depend on them. We know they're real. No one denies their reality, and we depend on them. Well, in the same way, we need to depend on the spiritual, invisible realities, like belonging to God in Jesus Christ, like possessing the forgiveness of all of our sins, like having the Holy Spirit live in us and having eternal life with God. We can't see any of them, but brothers and sisters, we depend on them for dear life. And so we learn to rejoice in those things. We boast in those truths. That's what the Lord is getting at in Jeremiah 9, which we read. 
Let me quote it. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast, same verb as in James, let not him boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me, that he knows me, the Lord, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, the poor believer and the rich believer are to boast in the very same thing. And that puts the rich and the poor on a level playing field spiritually. There's an equality there that each of us knows the Lord, and more importantly, that the Lord knows each of us. At the end of the day, money or the lack of money doesn't matter. For riches are temporary and fleeting, and we need to learn to look past those things. James is driving at that in verse 11, but before we unpack verse 11, we should clarify in all this talk of riches and poverty, just so that we don't misunderstand that riches in and of themselves are not evil. Possessing wealth is not sinful in itself, not unchristian. James is not condemning a believer for being wealthy. No. Later he mentions Abraham as an example of a believer who showed his faith by works. And Abraham was rich. Scripture says that he was a wealthy man and specifically that all of his wealth came to him as a blessing from the Lord. You can also think of other wealthy, faithful believers in Scripture, people like Joseph, who became the second highest ruler in Egypt. Then there's Job, David, Daniel. In the New Testament, the wise men who came from the East, they were loaded. Gold and frankincense and myrrh they gave. Then there's Nicodemus, whom I mentioned, and later in Acts, Cornelius the centurion. All of these, and there are others, these are individuals who are honored in the Bible as godly servants of the Lord. So wealth in itself doesn't disqualify anybody from being a believer. That's not the problem, money. The problem is, as Paul says elsewhere, the love of money. That's what is underlying James's concern here. That's where riches become a big temptation. For all sorts of people, not just for the rich, but for the rich as well. Certainly the love of money may cause the rich to want to become richer. Greed can become an insatiable desire to make still more money, to build up bigger bank accounts, to develop more assets. And as our assets grow and our wealth accumulates, we can develop a sense of safety and security that's based in our net worth. That's another trial for the wealthy. Will I find confidence for the future in my asset base, or will I find it in my God and Savior? Where is my help? As we confess every Sunday morning, where is it really? Ask yourself this, beloved. Don't think of anybody else, but now confront yourself 
personally with this question. If it all got taken away in an instant of time, what's in my bank accounts, my assets, my house? If it all got taken away, would I be lost and think life is no longer worth living? Or would I still feel rich in Christ? Because that hasn't changed. That's a struggle for the rich, and Jesus was very honest and, and forthright about the struggles that the rich have. It's harder, he said, for the rich to get into heaven than for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. That's pretty tough. We should take that seriously, all of us. Jesus was getting at those kind of struggles when he told the parable of the rich man in Luke 12. And we didn't read it, but I think most of us will know that story. Maybe you can read it later today at lunch. This, this man in the parable, he was very wealthy, and he had a bumper crop one year. What did he do? He decided to tear down his existing barns and build bigger barns so that he could continue to accumulate all his, of his growing wealth. He didn't think about spreading it around to the poor. He didn't think about somehow using it to build up the kingdom of God. He was just going to build up his own kingdom. Luke 12. This man felt safe and sound in all of his riches and money. He was rich toward himself, but not toward God. What does Jesus say about that man? And people like that. He, said, he says of him, he is a fool. And you don't want to be called a fool by the Lord Jesus, because that's about the worst thing you can be called. That night, said the Lord Jesus in his parable, God required of him his soul, which means God was going to render a judgment over his life, over what he did in his life. And all of his money in that hour of judgment could not help him one iota. So the love of money is a problem for the rich, but just as easily it can be a problem for the poor, also for poor believers in the church. Now here in Canada and in our congregation, it's hard to imagine anyone being poor in the sense of destitute, like you can see sometimes in, in certain countries or other situations. But in every congregation, there certainly are people without a lot of money. And certainly there's a lot of people with a lot less money than other people. And that fact, if you're one of those people that have less than others, it can cause our eye to wander. And you start looking at what other people have. We look around at the big houses and the fancy cars, and we start to think, I'd like to have a piece of that too. Envying those with nicer clothes or nicer homes or nicer vacations than we have can fuel our desire to become like them, to become one of the Joneses and keep up with the neighbors. And so we turn our attention and we concentrate on working hard, investing smartly, building up our equity. Why? So that we can join the club, the club of the wealthy Christians. That can easily be the same spirit as the rich man in the parable of Luke 12, who, who made money his focus. 
So church members with humble means have just as much to worry about when it comes to the love of money as church members with all the means already. The love of money is a threat to those with lots of possessions and to those with much fewer. That's why, brothers and sisters, we have to, we have to all learn to look past that stuff. Look past it. Look past what we see in people of money, prosperity, and affluence to what will happen to them in the long run. James tells us this in verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here, James is talking about rich people in general as a category or class, just like we might talk about the upper class. And he makes the point that rich folks, they're only around for a while, and th their money then goes to somebody else. So don't envy wealthy believers. That's true also for wealthy believers in the church. Don't envy them because wealthy people don't live forever any more than poor believers do. Because what James says in verse 11 is equally true of the poor believer, isn't it? The poor man doesn't live forever. He also is going to fade away in the midst of his pursuits, and the Bible makes that point in Psalm 103. All men are like grass. Isaiah 40, all men are like grass. But James zeroes in on the rich because that's where our temptation lies, our trouble lies so often. We frequently envy the rich, but we, we don't frequently envy the poor, do we? So this word of wisdom comes to us. If you are poor, brothers and sisters, if you have less, do not envy those who have more. Don't do that for such a person, just like yourself, will not last. Don't yearn for the things that are temporary and that fly away. Don't pine away to be someone who's going to die, same as any man. And if you are already rich, and think you stand safe and sound in life on account of your wealth, think again, because no amount of money can keep you from death. Rich and poor both need to look past earthly riches, earthly standing, and see what truly lasts. See the things that carry on beyond death and see what can preserve your life from death and grab onto that, brothers and sisters. Or rather, I should say, grab on to Him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has overcome death, who lives now eternally on heaven's throne and offers and even provides life, everlasting life, to all who put their trust in Him. You have to grab on to Christ. Jesus has all the riches when you come to think of it, doesn't He? He's the ruler of the world. If, if He wanted to give you gold or silver or assets or property, surely He 
has the power to do so, right? Hang on to him. He's got something far more precious than assets to pass on to you. And of himself, he is exactly the opposite of the flower in the field, isn't he? Every one of us will fade away like a flower in the field, not Jesus. He's beyond death. He's beyond the heat of the sun. His beauty will never fall. His beauty will never perish or fade away. He lives forever, and because He lives forever, He can make us live forever with Him. Hanging on to that, brothers and sisters, is the only way to get through the trials of poverty and riches, of having less but wanting more. You have to turn your attention to this eternal Christ, of having plenty and feeling safe in what you have. None of it can save. None of it will last very long. None of us will last very long unless by faith we boast in our humiliation and we rejoice in our exaltation, in our position as children of God through Jesus Christ. As the song says, let the poor man say, I am rich in him. Let the lost man say, I am found in him. Let the rich man say, I am nothing without Christ. That is wisdom from above, which will enable us to endure every trial. Amen.